Oh, thank you. Would you turn with me to Romans chapter 4? Um, if you're a visitor here, this is your first time to church. We'd like to welcome you. We're blessed that you're here. And if you don't have a church home, make sure you have one and you're most welcome here. Um, here at Calvary Chapel, we go through the Bible. Verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book. And uh, we believe that a lot of Bible and a little bit of man, of course, a little bit of man because the preacher has to get up. The book of Romans says in Romans chapter 10, how will they learn unless uh, God sends a preacher? We are privileged that God in his infinite capabilities would choose to use us to spread his truth across the world. He could have done it a number of ways. He's not limited, you know. He could have used angels that were much better preachers than man has ever seen to fly across the sky and, and preach the gospel, the truth. Um, he could have come himself. There's a number of ways God could have communicated his message, but he has chosen us, fallen human beings, saved by grace, putting our feet on the righteous rock of Jesus Christ to share this message. And, um, you know, we uh, at Calvary Chapel, we believe that the Bible is the answer. In the 1800s, there was a movement, really a movement that began with William Booth, who was a good man of God, he went into London, into the streets, may have been, if, I think it's the 1800s, yeah. And he began to share the gospel and thousands of children, teenage children, were being born again. So he started this movement, which is the Salvation Army. It became a church, but really it was a Sunday school movement to where um, these kids would come and they would uh, hear the word of God um, in, a, in a deep way. They would teach the scriptures. And then over time, these major denominations, seeing the success of William Booth and others, adopted this Sunday school movement and it became... Um, in mainline denominations such as Presbyterianism, Methodism, and uh, the um, Baptists, all forms of different Baptist churches, they would, well, they, they, they went away from what was being done since the Protestant Reformation during the times of Martin Luther in the 1500s, and that was to teach the Bible expositionally, that is, verse by verse, chapter by chapter. That was a common thing during the Protestant Reformation. So common that during that revival of the Reformation, um, it was actually uncommon not to teach the scriptures verse by verse, just go through the Bible which is, I think, offensive to God. He's made it clear that churches should be doing this in his scripture. And also, which one of us ever picks up a book and starts on page 453? You're going to be confused about a lot if you don't start in Genesis. And 
what happened is a initially good thing, which was William Booth and the Sunday school movement, turned into on a typical Sunday morning, because they wanted the, the desire to see um, success in a church, and they measure success by how many people come to church. And they saw these different movements. One of them was the, the um, movement of William Booth and the Salvation Army, the success and all these churches that were filled to capacity. They said, oh, we need to be doing that. And by the way, so many people, they always do that. How can we make a successful church? How can we get people in the church? And that becomes the way in which so many measure success. Not knowing that sometimes a successful church is purging people out. Not that they're not welcome, but oftentimes people want a specific message that's not the truth, and when they don't get it, they will leave. So people will compromise the truth. And what happened with this Sunday school movement is that, and, and many of you probably grew up in denominations that, do, that did this, especially if you grew up in a Baptist church, um, which there are great Baptist churches, please don't hear me wrong today, uh, Presbyterian or Methodist church, you may have gone and they, they classified the programs as such as this is Sunday school and it became for adults and then the main service was after Sunday school. And Sunday school is when people, they got into the scriptures in a deep way. And for the first time since the Protestant Reformation in the 1500s and a revival broke out in the world and Wycliffe and, 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 and Tyndale and Luther and all these different men started translating the Bible into the common languages. And now within that common language, the most important thing was to read it chapter by chapter. In the 1800s, the Sunday school movement took the majority of churches as it spread across the world to getting into the scriptures expositionally only for Sunday school, which was this 40-minute teaching before the main service. The main service would happen. You had the predominant population of the members of the church. Say there's a church of 500 people, then you would only get, generally the studies have shown, 8 to 10% of those people. You may get 30 to 50 people in Sunday school. And it was just an evangelical message in the main service. You skip down about 100 to 150 years of doing church this way across the world, you get ignorant Christians. People who do not have the power to sustain righteousness and holiness in their lives because they do not know the Bible. The Bible is the power that we need. All scripture is God-breathed and good for rebuke and correction and training in righteousness. Well, there was another revival that happened in the late 1960s called the Calvary Chapel Jesus Movement. Some of you have <clears throat> heard about this recent movie that has come out called The Jesus Revolution. A lot of people are criticizing it. It's so silly. I mean, it, it, 
thousands and thousands and maybe even a few million people got saved through this movement. And it's being criticized on YouTube. It's just annoying. Christians are constantly just nitpicking other Christians. One of the criticisms is the probably the greatest evangelist of the movement at the time was Lonnie Frisbee. And they're saying, well, he was a homosexual even while he was preaching. And it's just not true. He backslid later on after the revival had started several years later. And so on, all these criticism. But the main thing is that within this movement, where we get our heritage as a church, even here today, is returning back in the main services, expositional Bible studies. Where I am not here just to give an evangelistic message, or especially I'm not here to entertain the members, I am here to make sure you are equipped with the Word of God. Ephesians chapter 4, the Bible says that the Word of God is for the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry. You will not have the power to do the work of the ministry unless you know this book. You guys ever bought like a, a tool? refrigerator, a stove, a lawnmower, and then at the place, they didn't assemble it, so you got to go home and assemble it. And there are at least 18 different parts that you don't know exactly what they are. You're just, you, you, you rely on your mind first, like, oh, I can figure this out, you know. And you're holding the, 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 the objects. You're like, all right. Where's this going? You may even for an hour try to figure it out because us guys, we're very prideful. It's like we don't ever ask for directions, you know? I still get bothered where my, you know, when my family members in my car, they'll be like, hey, where are we going? You're going where I'm going. Be quiet. And then, for me at least, oftentimes, inevitably, I have to go to the owner's manual where I have to figure out what part 15, 16, 17, and 18 are really for. How could we ever expect to live a holy life without knowing this book? We can't. So that is a, just, I see so many new faces. That's just to give you a little history of who we are. And also to let you know that when we are able to access this movie, we're going to show it here at Calvary Chapel Eldoret. We're going to have an outreach. We'll invite all our unbelieving friends and we'll um, show that movie Jesus Revolution whenever we're able to access it here in Kenya. In Romans chapter 4 verse 1, the Bible says, What then shall we say? That Abraham our father has a found according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God. And it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness, just as David also describes the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works. Verse 7, 
He's quoting from the, uh, the psalmist David. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. So here in the scriptures, and as we have been studying the book of Romans together, understand that the book of Romans is building a foundation, and upon this foundation, which is Jesus Christ always, Matthew chapter 7 says to build our house on the foundation of Jesus Christ so that when the storms come and the wind blows, that is the problems with life, the deceitfulness of pleasure, then when it hits the house, our house will stand firm. But if it is built on the sand, then when the storms come, the problems of life or the wind blows, the deceitfulness of pleasure, it will crush our house and it will fall to the ground. And many of, of us have had our, the, our houses, our lives fall because our, our houses were built on sand. Now, there's some good news. You can rebuild your house. Some of us are going to have to rebuild our house seven different times because we're stubborn that way. God is gracious. But here in Romans, he's building this foundation, and, and as he began this, he, he must, before he promotes the righteousness of Christ, which he has done in these first three chapters several times, several times he talks about the righteousness of Christ, but one of the main subjects in light of the righteousness of Christ is the sinfulness of man. In Romans chapter 1, he describes the pagan. The, the uh, pagan simply means somebody who doesn't have any religious ceremonies. They don't go to church, they don't go to mosque, they don't go to temple. They don't have religious ceremonies. The pagan just lives his life without any religious affiliation, without any religious commitment, and they just do whatever they want when they want. And what they want is sin, and Romans 1 describes that sin, adultery, fornication, strife, envy, murder, homosexuality, lesbianism, and because of such sins, the wrath of God remains on them. They're without excuse because being created in the image of God, they are without excuse because they have a moral law written on their hearts, and separate from the moral law, they have a consciousness that convicts them when the moral law is broken, and because of that, they know they're guilty, and because they they know they're guilty they must search for a savior and when they don't but instead am I talking too fast <sighs> all right all right but instead they suppress the truth in unrighteousness that means they know the truth intuitively They know it intuitively without ever reading their Bible. They know they need a savior. They know they violated God. And God has the right, Romans 1, to kill them in their sins. And they're without excuse. But he doesn't want to kill them in their sins. And instead, he decided to kill his own son. So that... 
We can be forgiven. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it's the power of God unto salvation for anyone who believes, for the Jew first and then for the Gentile. That is to say, it's not that he prefers the Jew, it's that the gospel came to the Jews first. When they rejected it, it went to the Gentiles, and we have a predominantly Gentile-believing world, not a Jewish-believing world. So in chapter one, in chapter one, he addresses the pagan. In chapters two and three, he addresses three groups of people. He addresses the religious person that relies on their works, whether it be a Roman a religious person, a Greek religious person. And then specifically, he addresses the Jewish religious person, that person who follows after the religion of Judaism. And then he addresses a fourth group of person. He addresses Christians themselves. In Romans chapter 3, he says in verse 9, What then? Are we better than they? Not at all, for we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks. He now gives us the list of the three groups that were previously charged, the pagan, the religious Gentile, and the religious Jew. And then he brings in a fourth group of people in that verse Chapter 3, verse 9, are we better than they? Who's he talking about? He's talking about Christians. This is so important, church. It's, it, it's okay, religious person and religious Jew, you were saying amen in chapter 1. And then in chapter 2, you're, you're, you were accused, therefore you are an excusable oh man, verse 1. It's... You, you, you want the pagans to die because you have no love for the pagans. We're, we're called to love them. We're called to share Christ with them. And you want them to be killed. Jewish people and religious people, they hate the fact that a complete pagan can get born again and have the same inheritance in Christ that somebody who has worked for God or for Christ. And there is a distinction, by the way, in this, the religious mind of the, the Muslim or the Mormon or the Branhamite or the Jehovah's Witness, they don't worship Jesus as God. So when you talk to somebody who says, oh, I love God, you say, which one? And, and so you, you see this, this progression, this religious person and this Jewish religious person, they want the pagan to die. It's like Jesus shared that parable. He said, I hired somebody in the early morning and I said, I'm going to pay you this much. And then I hired somebody after lunch and I said, I'm going to pay you this much. But the person who got hired after lunch is the same person or the same person's going to get paid the same amount as the person who got hired in the morning. And the person who got hired in the morning is saying, this isn't fair. I've been working for you all day and they're going to get the same amount. And the master comes in and says, what is it to you? In the morning, you agreed that I would pay you this much. And you said, yes, I will work. Now you want to go back on the agreement that you and I made. And now you're upset that this person is getting paid the same amount. 
It is also similar to the parable of what is called the prodigal son, which is actually a parable of two sons. That prodigal son uh, and then the religious son, the pagan son and the religious son. The prodigal son, he goes out and he lives a life of pleasure and he wastes his entire inheritance and he comes back. And the father throws this party for him. The father runs out to greet him, kill the fatted calf, and the religious son walks out of the party in protest against his father and his brother. And the father comes out and he says, why are you protesting? He said, I have worked for you all these years and you've never killed the fatted calf for me. Do you, do you see, and I've been trying to do this for weeks because the Bible is doing it, how ingrained, how inside works are in every human being because works and pride go together. I want to earn salvation. And so you see the religious person and the religious Jew hating the pagan and wanting them not to have the same inheritance that Christ is going to give everyone. And also, you see that he wants to cover all the bases and even he wants Christians not to hate the religious person or the pagan. The New Testament rebukes against religious leaders is not supposed to solicit a hate for religious leaders, only to identify the truth of where they are going wrong. And then we, according to Galatians, who are spiritual, come alongside somebody in gentleness, restoring such a one, considering ourselves, lest we also be tempted. This progression in these three chapters, guys, is totally amazing. In other words, it says in chapters 3, verse 9, are we better than they? Not at all. And, 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 and the Bible is trying to get us to say, hey, take the focus off of humanity. And because humanity's mouth are shut now, because Romans 1 through 3 has proven that all are guilty, all the focus of humanity is not each other, but it is Jesus Christ. You know, when I was growing up, I just, I had idols. I, I, I didn't know I had idols. I didn't say they were my idols, but I had these idols. Pagan men, like Tupac Shakur. I still see Tupac shirts here in Eldoret. Some of you guys have them. Burn them. Don't give them away. Burn them. He represents a pagan culture. It, but I, I'm telling you guys, I, I memorized every word to every song that he ever wrote. You know? I could... Oh, okay, I won't. My wife just shook her head at me. Don't do it. I wasn't going to say anything bad. And, and I realized after I got saved... There was a couple occasions that I would go back and listen to a few of his songs. Now, some of them aren't bad, but I, I, you go back to most of them, they're terrible. 
And you're listening to like, how is it that this guy was ever somebody that I looked up to? And then you get your own heroes in the faith. I have heroes. I still do. I look up to people. I, I look up to Chuck Smith deeply. I've never got to meet him, but I've read every one of his books. Um, I, uh, I've read all of the biographies. I've seen every documentary on the Calvary movement. I love the Calvary movement. I was a heroin addict. They let me come to church. It was, it was good news for me. But I'm just so amazed by his humility. I admire my pastor. I, uh, I, uh, one of my heroes is Billy Graham, John Wesley, John Knox, Martin Luther. I, I have heroes. But even, even then, the, the older I get in Christ, I realize, man, even amongst all those great people, Elizabeth Elliot, what a magnificent woman. To go in and share the gospel with the very men who killed her husband, what a remarkable person. I have heroes, but guys, you look into their lives, you'll always find a fault. Like, you hang out with me for one hour, you'll be like, that guy's really messed up. And then when you, when you see what Romans 1 through 3 here is doing, you see that, that, that humanity is collectively sinful. And yes, we can admire certain Christians and look up to people, but Paul says to the Corinthians that it is unwise to compare yourselves with one another. It's unwise. You look at somebody who's worse than you and have a false sense of pride in your righteousness. You look somebody that's better than you and you'll feel really guilty about your unrighteousness. And it's this vicious cycle of, of comparing with one another. But when we as humanity shut our mouths because all of humanity is guilty before God, as Romans 3 says, we all look towards Christ. I mean, this point runs so deep in our minds and our hearts that, that even during communion, it is on my heart uh, on what I said today because even when people are taking communion, I'll see people like, I can't do it today. I had a really bad week. Oh, I can't take communion. Oh, no, I can't do it. I, I've I'm, ba you know, I'm backslidden. Well, communion is the opportunity right then and there to remember the forgiveness of Christ and his sacrifice and not your deeds and not your works. By the way, I can see it. I know some of you think that you're invisible. I can see you. I can see when you get on Facebook. I can tell the difference between a Bible phone and, and a, a, a Bible on your phone and Facebook. When I'm reading scriptures, the Bible on the phone is you doing this. When you're on Facebook, it's you doing this. And I see people not taking communion. Okay, if you're not a believer, you're like, I don't believe in Christ. I don't believe he's the son of God. I don't believe he died on the cross. I don't believe he resurrected. Then you don't take communion. But if you are examining your own righteousness during communion, you miss the entire point of the gospel. The entire point of it is to examine his sacrifice. That's what Romans is doing. 
And after discussing all those people groups, so that we as humanity and all people groups and all forms and all races of all peoples, we come to the conclusion of the truth of what the Bible is saying, Christ is the answer. He is the answer. And now the Apostle Paul must move on to the father of their faith, the father of the nation. Abraham. What shall we say then, he says? Abraham, our father, has found according to the flesh. What was Abraham? This is what the scripture says. What was Abraham able to accomplish? Do you guys know that the Jewish nation believes to this day that Abraham at that time and even maybe still was the most righteous person in the world and that's why God chose him? And now Paul being that great theologian, that great apologist, wants to remind them that Abraham was accounted for righteousness because of his faith, not because of his works. What, what was Abraham, the Bible saying, able to accomplish in his flesh? Well, for if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Now he does what I was promoting and introducing to all of you visitors or those who aren't familiar with Calvary Chapel, what the foundation of all Christian life and all Christian churches is and should be, and that is the word of God. In Romans chapter 3, when he anticipates three objections, uh, the Jews would say to Paul, you're attacking God's people, you're attacking God's place, that's the place of the temple, and you're attacking God's purity. Instead of giving an apologetic, that is to sense an apologetic separate from the word, he goes straight to the Old Testament. He goes straight to the scriptures. And Paul could have given any number of logical arguments. But you remember... What was said, let me find the quote here. It's a good one. This is a, a quote from a great theologian. It says, logic without theology leads to a false reality where we are the heroes of our own story and everyone else is wrong and in the way. Let me repeat it. Logic without theology, logic without scripture, leads to a false reality where we are the heroes of our own story and everyone else is in the way. Paul could have given a logical argument. He could have said, well, if we're righteous in our works, then why is there still death? For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is everlasting life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So if you're righteous... If you're saved by your works, then why are you still dying? Well, the reason why he doesn't give a logical argument separated from Scripture is because all logic goes into a false narrative when it's not connected to Scripture. Scripture is the ultimate authority. Scripture always should have the final word. 
And so he goes back to scripture. What does the scripture say? Abraham believed God. Genesis. He's going back to Genesis. Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness, not to him who works. The wages are counted as grace, but as debt. He's saying, guys, this isn't new news. As I read um, uh, the prophet Micah last week, Micah said, how shall I approach God? Through the sacrifice of a lamb, through 10,000 rivers of oil, presenting my son as a sacrifice? No. But what does God require of thee but to do justly and to walk humbly with thy God? It is not anything I can do. And Paul, at least he'd be accused of presenting some new theology, is sharing with the Jewish nation, with the religious person, with the, the Christian, with the pagan, is this is the truth and it has always been the truth. And then if it were not enough to quote Micah and to remember all of the prophets, then let's go to the greatest figure in all of religious history, Abraham himself. How did he receive righteousness? He believed God. Ladies and gentlemen, Abraham was 86 years old when he received righteousness. 80 six years old. There's this old prayer that really I think the Catholic Church adopted is, um, Lord, if I die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. Really, as we get older, we should pray, Lord, wake me up before I die. Because we can get so tired. There was a study done with several hundreds, maybe a few thousand people who were over the age of 95. And they were asked this question, what would you do differently about your life? And the top three answers was, we would reflect more, we would meditate more. Number two, we would take more risk. And number three, we would do more things that would last long after we die. So many of us are focused on retirement. So many of us are focused. The entire goal of life is to develop our future compound or develop the compound that we currently have. Go into the city, work, so that you can, you start in the village, you're not content there, so you go to the city so that you can develop the village so you can move back there. It's the, it's the plan, man. And then we have our children that are born unto us, not so that we can nurture them in Christianity predominantly or disciple them, it's so that they can grow up to develop our compounds. And God is calling people out of their comfort zone. He's calling people out of not taking risk. If we can see everything that involves us stepping out into a new direction of our life, that's not faith. Faith is when you cannot see. 
And you still say, God, I trust you. I'm going to believe you. He was 86 years old and he said, God, I have no children. And God said, hey, go out, go out, go out of your tent. Your, your eyes are blocked by the ceiling of your tent. You can't see clearly. Your tent is in your eyes. This world is in your eyes. Your house is in your eyes. Walk outside the front door or the front flap and look up. So he does. He, he goes out and Abraham looks up and he says, hey, hey, Abraham, you see the stars? Which, by the way, there are a lot more than Abraham realized back then. He said, Abraham, you see the stars? Yeah. Your descendants will be like the stars. You will not be able to number them. And by the way, it's a literal prophecy. You cannot number. There's no measuring. There's no way to historically verify how many people have been born unto Abraham. And Abraham at 86 years old says, I believe you, God. And God says, Abraham, that's enough. You are righteous. I'm putting it on your account. It was accounted, the Bible says in Romans 4, accounted for him for righteousness. That word in the Greek is logizomai. It's like a banking term. When you put money in the bank, you, you just put something on your account. What God is saying to Abraham is, righteousness is on your account. I am giving you righteousness. You didn't earn it. You didn't do anything. The only thing you did is believe God. Therefore, you can't take credit for anything. I don't owe you anything, Abraham. You owe me everything. And that's what the next verse is saying, by the way. The next verse is saying, it was accounted to him for righteousness. Verse 4, now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. Just as David says. Do you know what the Bible's saying is? When you go work, you deserve a paycheck. A workman is worth his... I tell that to my children all the time. Because I want them to know they're not allowed to eat unless they do work around the house. If you, you go up to one of my kids after the service, say, if you don't work, they'll finish the verse for you. You don't eat. You know. It's like, you want to eat lunch? Yeah, go clean your room. If you don't work, you don't eat. See, that's not what's going on here. Because when you work, you earn a wage. It says when you work, you, you, the, somebody owes you a debt. So if the world, by the way, humanity is constantly creating new cults and new apostate Christianity and trying to work for God. God, I'm working for you. You owe me. God, I'm working for you. You owe me salvation. God, I'm working for you. You owe me money. God, I'm working for you. You give me a promotion. God, I'm working for you. You give me a wife that I want. God, I'm working for you. I want this, this, this. And what the scripture is saying is Abraham didn't work for his righteousness. The only thing he did is believe the righteousness of God. And God accounted to him righteousness. Gave it to him. And then it says, hey, when he just gives you righteousness as a free gift, just because you believed, God doesn't owe you anything else. 
You owe him everything. That's what the scripture is saying. It is, it is so against this, so against their religion. Next week, we're going to talk about faiths. Uh, Abraham's faith is exhibited, explained, and examined. But this idea of faith, ladies and gentlemen, it's not just for the young to take risk. You know, when you're younger, you take so many risks. Some of them are very unnecessary, by the way. Others are good. God sees faith. When I was 23 years old, we moved to Kenya to start a church. Back then, I, people thought I was just filled with faith. I think there was faith involved, of course. Really, I was just young and immature. I'm going, yeah, you know. And as I, as I get older, I find myself getting so comfortable with life that I don't want to take any more risk, and it scares me. It does. It scares me. I'm like, oh, man. When I was 23, it was easy to take risk. I had nothing. I didn't have a house. I didn't have a wife. Well, I did have a wife. Sorry. I just got married. I didn't have children. Well, I did. She was pregnant within a few weeks of marriage. <laughs> we had a honeymoon baby. Praise the Lord. Amen. Okay. Some of you were waiting, but that's okay if you want to. So stupid. I get so distracted. I, did, I, I, I was young. And now as I get older, I'm like, everything comes into mind. I'm like, man, you're going to start a missions organization in the middle of probably what's going to be the greatest economic collapse the world has ever seen. And the reason I know that is because the Bible says it will be the greatest economic collapse the world has ever seen. Doesn't make any sense but I believe the Lord's calling me to do it, so I'm going to do it. And there's fear. It's like, man, that means I have to try to find a place for my parents, or not my parents, my, my family to live in the States because we have no place to live in the States. So now I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to buy a, an acre of land, cut all the trees down, get a camper for my family to stay in, and just build a house over the next few years. It sounds utterly ridiculous and terrible. But that's what we're doing. And my wife still loves me. It's a miracle. You still love me, Kelsey? Okay, good. I just had to check. I put, I put my family in through the mission. I get so scared that I'm growing too old and comfortable not to step out in faith. I have a friend right here in the audience. I don't want to embarrass him. He's a missionary. He just sold his house in California. He should be retiring and staying in that house. Instead, he moves to Africa. What's the matter with him? Let me tell you what it is. It's faith. Faith that God has called us to something greater until the day we die. Not just leaving it for young people. George Bernard Shaw said, youth is a wonderful thing. It's a shameful thing to waste it on young people. Youth is not just an age. It's your attitude as you get old. I know a lot of older people in age who are very youthful. 
very youthful, filled with faith. And I believe the enemy has a stranglehold on Kenya. He's holding the throats and it's hard to breathe because the entire Kenyan world has their own idea about marriage. And they put money before marriage. They put money before God. Says, no, I, I can't uh, marry until I have this, 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 and this. And you're ripping yourself off to see how God would provide for a young family. In faith. In faith. The sun, S-U-N, the sun that we see shining out here right now, is 864,000 miles in diameter. 864,000. That is 109 times larger than planet Earth. Can you imagine Earth times 109 and that's the size of the sun? And yet, if you walk out of this church and look up into the sky and see the sun, you can take an eight-inch Bible and cover 864,000 miles in diameter in one second. You can't see it. So many of us have the world right in front of our eyes. Career money, support, school fees. And you can't see. You can't see. So that you would step out in faith and say, I'm going to violate the distractions of the world and I'm going to see the Son of God who stands brighter than any of my problems, that stands more powerful than anything I'm going through, that is more comforting than any pain I can realize. And you look unto the Son of God for all the answers and you step out in faith because you don't know how, but you know that He is going to see you through it all. Abraham believed God in faith. Don't compromise, church. Take the world out from in front of your eyes because there is the brightness of his glory that wants to shine into your life. Why isn't there more Kenyan missionaries leaving Kenya? Because you're so worried about money. And if that's offensive, I'm sorry, but it's true. And by the way, there are people in this church that I would choose over many American missionaries because you're wonderful Christian people and maybe God would call you out. Maybe he'd call you to Egypt, to Morocco, to China, to America. We need missionaries to Afghanistan, to Iraq, to Ghana. Nigeria needs the truth. It's the most prosperity gospel nation in the world and maybe the Lord will call you to do what you've already been planning. But will you allow yourself to get on your knees before God and say, it doesn't matter what you call me to. I know I have my plans. I know I have my vision. I know I have my dreams. But God, what acts of faith do you want me to walk in today? Abraham.
believe God, and it was accounted him for righteousness. Let's have the worship team come up as we bow our heads in prayer. Lord, we thank you. We thank you, Lord, that we have an example. It wasn't a righteous man, a man who was not sinful, but it was a man who believed your word, that you had the power to give him children. And not only did you have the power to give him children at 86 years old, you had the power to give him millions of children, an entire nation born unto Abraham. And I can't wait to see what you will do with the faith of the people in this room. For your eyes search to and fro throughout the whole earth and certainly within this room right now to show yourself strong on behalf of the person whose heart is perfect towards you, whose heart is filled with faith, ready to take a risk. We know, Lord, if there's no risk, there's no reward. And we know that you'll provide for all of our needs according to your riches and glory. We don't have to worry about that stuff. We don't have to worry about the food that we're going to get. The rent that we're going to pay. The education we need support for. We know that you are God. Help us increase our faith. Increase our faith, oh God, more than you increase our bank account. Please. Money fades. Faith will remain for eternity. We need you, Lord. We need you, Holy Spirit. Forgive us for lack of faith. Forgive us for thinking we're righteous. Forgive us for comparing ourselves to one another. Forgive us for our slander and gossip and strife, which is really just being focused on humanity. But as we look towards Christ, give us perspective. As we look towards his word, give us faith to walk out no matter what our worldly circumstances are. And as we continue to worship you, even in our offering, give us faith to give our offerings, Lord, and to say, hey, you are worthy. You can multiply and grant us wisdom through the administration of these gifts that we may expand your kingdom in faith. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.